Support for WAER Original Podcasts comes from California Closets of Syracuse, located in DeWitt. California Closets can help you get your entire home organized with custom design storage solutions for the home office, kitchen pantry, closets, and more. Online at californiaclosets.com. We got a 35 millimeter nitrate print of Casablanca from the Museum of Modern Art. And it was so crisp and so clean directly off the negative. And the nitrate itself was just sparkling. So the tears in Ingrid Bergman's eyes uh, as, she, as they're welling up was just you know, reflecting back at you. And that was sort of the moment you were like, oh my God. Movies are everywhere these days. They are on our TV screens, laptops, tablets, even our phones. We can catch the latest motion picture in our living room, in a cab, or on a flight. Now, I might be showing my age a bit, but while I appreciate the easy access to movies, I still love the big screen. I remember being seven years old and wandering into the big theater auditorium with my bag of popcorn and being blown away by the spectacle of Star Wars. I was so awestruck, I just stood there in the aisle until one of the other patrons tapped me on the shoulder and told me to go find a seat. This is Pop Life from WAER. I'm Kendall Phillips, and I'm pretty sure I'm not alone in romanticizing the big screen and the look of a glorious 35-millimeter celluloid print. Indeed, across the country, there are numerous independent theaters catering to fans who want that look and feel of original nitrate and appreciate viewing Hollywood classics on the silver screen. Here to help us think about this nostalgia for classic cinema and the importance of preserving those original prints is Jared Case, curator of film exhibition at the George Eastman Museum's Dryden Theater. Jared, welcome to Pop Life. Well, thanks, Kendall. It's great to see you again. Good to see you. I should say to listeners, Jared and I are, are old friends. We've done a fair amount of work together, just broadly around film and film history. And so I want to start with the film history mm-hmm. aspect of this, which is I think probably most listeners would think that we have access to all the films ever made, or at least most of the films ever made. But that's really dramatically not true. No, absolutely. Uh, When you go through the history of home media formats, starting with 16 millimeter and going on to VHS, DVD, Blu-ray, each time that a new format comes out, sure, you have the new releases that are, you know, commensurate with with the release of those uh, formats. But each and every time for classic films, they go back to the big ones. They go back to Wizard of Oz. They go back to Casablanca. They go back to Gone with the Wind. And it's not that previous format that they're going back to. They're going back to the original, to that film that's being conserved at film archives around the country. And they're scanning it again to get the best possible uh, image from that original medium, which is what they're trying to duplicate. So the, the conservation of film at all of these archives is essentially important. And it, it is the basis of what we are doing in terms of exhibition because we're trying to bring those original prints or prints as close as possible to the original back to the audience for that cinematic experience. What's the great thing about an original print? I mean, for those who have seen it, I think it doesn't have to be said because they've seen it on the screen. But from your perspective, like, what does it bring to sit in a darkened movie theater and see that original restored, beautiful 35 millimeter print? So many things. Uh, (laughs) Well, I I like to talk about cinema as an experience in and of itself. There's three things that cinema are that home video is not. It is immediate. 
you are making an appointment, a date with cinema. It starts at a certain time. You have to be there to see the whole thing. And if you are going to make a decision about going to the restroom or, you know, if there's a place where you can get popcorn, going to get popcorn in the middle of the film and you are deciding to miss part of that film. It is uh, immersive, right? You've got that huge screen. And, of course, when you have wonderful sound, you're immersed within that soundscape as well. And it's communal. You are watching it with other people. Uh, so all of that uh, contributes to the cinematic experience of, of seeing a print on the big screen. But the films themselves, if you consider um, making copies of something, a, a Xerox showing our age again, uh, <laughs> when you make copies of copies, that the the quality goes down each copy that you make. So the closer you can get to that original negative that was in the camera, the better you, the, mm -hmm. that print is going to look. And that leads into the Nitrate Picture Show, which we've been running since 2015, which brings nitrate films, nitrate prints, as they were originally seen in the theaters, back to the screen, because that's something the Dryden can do that so many other theaters within the country just can't do. So it's uh, also the way that the film is made. Those nitrate prints, especially the black and white, have so much silver content in them mm -hmm. that the, the sharpness and the contrast within those prints is markedly different than the copies that we make. The, the ones that we're putting onto acetate or polyester film, which is still 35 and still has that film experience, but they just don't have the same makeup that those original nitrate prints do. So you're losing some of that with each copy that you make. And probably, my guess is most movie theaters that, that people are going to, the multiplexes, et cetera, wouldn't even have 35-millimeter projectors. Like, I'm guessing that's a relatively rare thing to have just the technology to, to project that kind of film. Correct, yeah. Most of the um, big theaters that put out the movies that are coming out now are on digital. Sure. DCP, digital cinema packages is what we call them. And it's essentially a, a drive or it's a download of a group of files that you're now showing uh, on the screen. And... With the, in the, at the museum, at the Dryden Theater, those films that are made on digital and released on digital, that's how we want to sure. show that. But if it's made on 35, we want to show it on 35 to recreate that original experience. Can you see a difference? Now, you're, you're, you're really an expert here. When you sit and you're looking at a digital uh, uh, print or your digital projection versus a 35 millimeter, can you feel, I've often heard people in film talk about being able to feel the difference in the film. Can you feel it? Can you see it? Do you know it? Uh, for the most part, yes. Yeah. And and that's something that you train to do. Um, uh, we have a school, the L. Jeffrey Selznick School of Film Preservation that runs at the museum. This is the 27th year, so it's wow. the oldest operating school of film preservation in the world. And I'm a graduate of that. So many of the people that work at the museum are a graduate of it. And you train to, as you're watching something, not only do it for the enjoyment of it and, and try to ingest <laughs> that narrative and the acting. But you're also looking for the scratches and you know what hmm. side of the film those scratches are on or you're looking for the, the burn mark in the upper right corner because you want to look at the changeover uh, from reel to reel and you're looking at the fading. So uh, hmm. among that, you, you, you can be trained to see the difference between film and digital. There's a flicker with film sure. because... Uh, it is created in a completely different way than a digital image is on screen. Digital image is built from the ground up, the red, blue, and green. And there's constant light on the screen, even in those dark areas, the, the shadows that we see on the screen. Whereas film 
is basically, I, I call it sculpture with light, right? You're putting something in front of light to take away what you don't want to see. So especially with those black and white films, you're actually creating those shadows on the screen. Hmm. And there's a, a shutter within the projector that covers the, the changeover from frame to frame. So you're actually seeing dark blackness for about 40% of the time that you're actually watching a film on screen, which is a completely different experience. And it has a different experience on your brain mm-hmm. when you're ingesting that as well. So you talked about film preservation, which I know is something that Eastman has, has really been at the forefront of, as you say, one of the oldest uh, uh, Institutional institutions kind of focused on teaching people film preservation. I guess I'm always struck by, and I think a lot of people don't realize this, how much of early film is gone. I, I saw a statistic from the Scorsese Foundation saying I think like 80% of films before 1929 are gone entirely. Yeah, it depends on who you ask. Um, the Library of Congress also did a study a couple of decades ago now, and the, the general sense is that half of all films made before 1950 during that nitrate right. era are gone. And then uh, the, night, the Library of Congress said like 75% of silent films are, are now no longer exist, whereas the Film Foundation, Martin Scorsese's organization, has that number up near 90%. But it's, it, a lot of it depends on who is looking after, who's protecting these titles. So a lot of the Hollywood product, because the Columbia Studios is now Sony, Warner Brothers has survived, MGM is now part of Warner Brothers, Fox has survived, all of those companies that can make more money off of these films keep them in, in good shape. So what we're losing is the small studios. We're losing the imp- independent productions. We're losing um, uh, small documentaries, educational films, uh, all these itinerant films mm-hmm. that uh, just don't have that investment now, is that something that folks like you at Eastman or I guess like UCLA or the Academy or other places that are dedicated to film preservation, is that part of what you're trying to fight is, is losing all those voices that were not, you know, Walt Disney or Samuel <laughs> Goldwyn? Yes. Uh, the idea is for preservation is first sure. to collect. You collect films that nobody else has if you can. Mm-hmm. Uh, the conservation is the next part where you keep the film cool and dry for as long as possible because that's going to extend its usable life, whether that's for projection or uh, film-to-film transfer, so you can do that preservation. And then you get into preservation or restoration. You try to make it look as close as possible to its original release. And what we do is not an either-or. It's a both-and. We want to preserve on film, mm-hmm. on the gauge that it was originally seen in, and then also do digital on top of that so that there are more places where people can see this, these images and these sounds that were on the screen. Yeah, I would think the average person probably would think, oh, isn't a digital copy better than a physical copy? Because a physical copy can catch fire, a physical copy, but a digital, I can leave it on the ether. But is that not true? Oh, absolutely not true. <laughs> uh, we, we showed at the Nitrate Picture Show uh, a silent film, silent short film from 1913. I had a, a collection of uh, beta tapes mm. that nobody can play anymore. So it's it's these new formats do not last as long. And with digital, it's the same way. Not just about playing them, but moving them from place to place or um, getting something that mm. can read those old files. If I brought out a, a five and a half inch floppy disk, then <laughs> we would we would have no way to play it without some sort of expert technique. Yeah. 
Well, actually, at WAAR, we still use floppy disks, so that would not be a problem for us. No, I recall uh, someone else I, I talked to uh, from UCLA's uh, preservation saying, you know, that part of the problem is, as you say, uh, an old silent film that has a bit of it rotted out, you can cut and splice, but a digital file with one line of code is gone. Mm, it, yeah. it, it is utterly destroyed. So I guess the other part of that, just kind of staying with the, the film history and preservation, is I wonder how many films that maybe even still exist that we just don't have access because there's not a profit motive in giving people access to, I don't know, early Callum films or, you know, SNA films. Like they're just not, as opposed to Disney, which you say, you know, will control its intellectual property and use that to maximize profit. And so that's their motive, both for preserving, but also for giving access. I wonder how many films we just will never have access to because Netflix, Hulu, HBO, pick your streaming service just won't see any point in putting that out there. And oh, that's a that's a question, right? <laughs> how many? We we don't know how many are lost. We don't know how many are never going to be seen. Um, we there there are ways that you can see films at the archive. Uh, because uh, many of the um, academics come and they're doing research on some of these films that are not out on home media um, or they may not even be preserved yet because I, I did some calculations at one point in time. If we have 25,000 titles at the museum and on average it takes $40,000 to um, preserve these film to film, we're, we're talking like a billion dollars Wow! just for the ones in our archive. Uh, so there is a lot of collaboration among the archives to try to make the the best version out of the material that's still available so we don't all have to do it. We can work together to try to make that, that one great copy. But there's legal problems sometimes mm -hmm. as well. So uh, there's a, an instance of a film called Sally, Irene, and Mary, which was a 1925 MGM film, which we have in our collection. Early Joan Crawford performance uh, made by MGM. Fox made a version later that, you know, they bought the underlying rights, essentially. So Fox has the ability, to, technically, they, they bought that film as well, but they're not going to exploit the rights for a film from another oh, studio. Right. They're going to exploit the rights from their version. So it's sort of lost within this legal miasma. Yeah, who owns, who gets the right to get the money. And so then that becomes the value of institutions like the Eastman House and, and the Dryden Theater is that not only are you preserving these films and, and keeping them, for the record, but you're also screening them. So mm -hmm. I understand, as you talked about, mentioned earlier, the Nitrate Film Festival. So tell us when that started and what the impetus was for Nitrate. So 2015 was the first Nitrate Picture Show, and I think the, the, the idea had been kicked around a while. Deborah Stoiber, who is the collections manager within the Moving Image Department, um, was always keeping track of Nitrate prints that were able to still be projected. Mm -hmm. And I, knowing that the, the uh, black and white looks so great on nitrate, was always interested in doing sort of a nitrate noir weekend. If we can get a bunch of uh, film noir for a weekend. And this, you know, between the two of us, we finally sort of got the message across to our senior curator at the time, Paolo Kerkiusai, who said, look, if you want to do this, you have to do it. So uh, the two of us, along with the uh, curator of film exhibitions at the time, Yuri Maden, we sat down and we, you know, sort of low-hanging fruit, mostly things from our collection. Let's get this buy-in from the other archives who are doing this tremendous work of conserving films throughout time to get them to send some nitrate films and we'll have a weekend. And people came from all over the world just for the opportunity to see nitrate projected on the screen. We didn't tell anyone what any of the titles were. It's just like, this is a special opportunity. 
It's going to be nitrate on the screen. Come visit us. And we had hundreds of people come from around the world. And since then, we have included uh, archives from Japan, from South America, from Europe, who are also contributing films for this festival, which is still ongoing. And the next one is going to come up in June of this year. So it's still a, it, it's still a vital medium and something we really want to do because we are outside of California. We are the only place in the United States that can show nitrate film. And this is the George Eastman Museum and the Dryden Theater in Rochester, New York, for, for our listeners from all around the world who are listening, planning to make their trip uh, to see the Nitrate Film Festival. So I probably we should step back and give at least that quick story why the George Eastman, who is George Eastman and why uh, the George Eastman Museum is so invested in the preservation of film. Ooh, that, that, uh, that could be a long story, too. Uh, George Eastman was uh, an inventor, a, 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 a businessman, and a philanthropist uh, based in Rochester, New York, who uh, came up with many of the ideas that made uh, both motion picture photography and still photography possible. So uh, after he passed in 1932, uh, the building that his house was given to the University of Rochester, who just couldn't maintain it. It was the president's house for a while. Oh, really? And then there was a, a community group that decided we should have a place that honors George Eastman uh, for Rochester. So in 1947, it was incorporated. 1949, we opened up. So our 75th anniversary is coming up next year. Happy birthday. And we have a lot of great things planned for, for that anniversary. But it became a, a museum of film and photography. And we started collecting both still photography and motion picture film. And immediately we knew we needed an exhibition space for films. So uh, George's niece, Ellen Dryden, uh, gave a lot of money to have the Dryden Theater built uh, on the same piece of land as the uh, George Eastman House, at the, as it was called at the time, uh, to put these films on screen. And of course, this was all nitrate film at that point in time. So when the projectors were put in, we had the ability to project nitrate film because we we're taking things from our collection. And uh, we just maintained that ability throughout the decades to keep that up, something that we can do that just fell away at just about every other place. And that's a great sense. Now, you are not an Eastman or a Dryden. No. You are instead <laughs> a renowned expert on film history and film preservation. So, Jared, I'm fascinated. What brought you to be interested in film history? Well, let's tie it back to the beginning of the episode. Uh, back when <laughs> I job. saw, back when I saw Star Wars for the first time, uh, it was uh, at the Lakeshore Drive-In Theater in uh, Greece, New York. And it was a double feature with Star Wars and Orca. Oh God! And uh, we did not stay for Orca because we were supposed to be. My sister and I were supposed to be sleeping in the back seat, and we saw the uh, little baby Orca being cut out of the <laughs> the mama Orca, and we screamed. And that said, "That's it. We're getting out of here." But that, you know, just permeated my brain. You know, my, I would lean over from the back seat and ask uh, my father if the rear defroster was the rear deflector. It was just something that, you know, became a part of my life. And it grew from there, uh, from the PBS station that, that was just sewing uh, older films to the late night movies or the Saturday afternoon movies. And then it was the age of uh, VHS and beta and we would rent films and I just grew right into it. Uh, that's amazing. Do you remember, other than Star Wars, do you remember the first, what was the first kind of classic old black and white film that you saw that you said, oh, wow, yeah, 
that's that's a thing. That's something I'm interested in. Oh, it was probably a Hitchcock. Uh, I remember the birds very specifically playing on Channel 21 and just freaking me out uh, completely. But it, it was, you know, a Saturday night was probably right before Doctor Who. So uh, <laughs> it was probably a Hitchcock that they were playing right around that same time. Yeah, that, that PBS British blog yeah. has a lot to answer for, as does George <laughs> Lucas, for that matter. So what led you to film history? I mean, there are lots of careers in film. We've certainly on the show talked to lots of people who are in various places. What led you to say, I want to make my job preserving, uh, restoring, and then making accessible, you know, screening these these amazing body of films? Um, it seems like everything's a long story, but... Um, I, I tried to find my way into the, the film industry. I was trying to figure out where I fit. And the original idea was to be Roger Ebert. That was also the time at the movies, which was on every Sunday. And um, I would, so I went to school initially with a double major in uh, journalism and uh, film studies. Um, but when I realized that uh, it wasn't so much the journalism of all the president's men that I loved so much as the filmmaking that sort of turned mm. right around right there. Um, so I tried to do some writing, script writing, and did some production. And it was when I was working overnights at a Borders, I ran into Brad Reeves, who was a student at the Eldrafi Salson School of Film Preservation, and everything sort of fell into place. It was dealing with the history, the the physicality of the film. It was the history. It was the presentation. It was the idea that uh, preservation included exhibition because that's sort of the last step. There's no reason to preserve something if nobody's going to see it. So uh, I've been at the museum for 23 years now wow. and uh, cataloger for 15 years, and I've been the curator of film exhibitions for five years. And I realized I've been doing that, you know, for decades anyway, whether I was inviting my friends over to watch something, uh, a, a Kurosawa tape that I bought for 60 bucks because it was uh, the basis for uh, Star Wars with the Hidden Fortress or uh, getting involved in the student activities board and choosing which films to bring mm -hmm. into the campus, 16 millimeter back then. But it's been something that I've always loved. It's the conversation usually that you have after. Now that we've had this experience, let's all talk about what it meant to us. So one of the great things I think for me, and I've had a chance to do a little bit of archive work, nothing as extensive as you, but there are those wonderful moments when you come across something and you say, oh, wow, that, that, that thing, that's the, that is a thing. That's, that's the thing I was looking for. Um, for you, as a person who's, who spends a lot of time around old films and old documents and old photographs, are there any that really stood out for you as, as things that you, when you saw it, you thought, oh, my, that is an original Hitchcock, that's a this, that's a whatever it is. Was there something that really made your eyes bug out and you said, wow? I, I, I would answer that by saying there's sort of an intellectual understanding of the mm. rarity of something. And then there's the physical and emotional experience of it. Yeah. And that first year of the nitrate picture show, we got a, a 35 millimeter nitrate print of Casablanca from the Museum of Modern Art. And it was so crisp and so clean directly off the negative. And the nitrate itself was just sparkling. So the tears in Ingrid Bergman's eyes uh, as, she, as they're welling up was just, you know, reflecting back at you. And that was sort of the moment you were like, oh, my God, you know, this is transformative. It's not the same, certainly as watching it on DVD at home, but it's not even the same as watching our, our normal polyester acetate print of Casablanca that we would normally show. Wow.
that that had to be very special. Are there other in terms of like choosing? So you you uh, curate the screenings. How do you make those decisions? Like to give someone else their <laughs> Casablanca moment. How do you how do you choose? Like this is the film that I hope will bring someone the audience to the same emotional state that you had. You try to do that sort of every time. Um, but there was actually a great experience that I had. Somebody just the other night came in and. Um, we were screening State and Maine, which is part of our Philip Seymour Hoffman series, which we're running all throughout the year. Uh, there's a, a sculpture of Philip Seymour Hoffman that now stands outside the Dryden. So this gentleman had come in for a music show to Rochester and just sort of happened upon the fact that State and Maine was playing, and it was a film that he liked. But also we had a Philip Seymour Hoffman's sister doing the introduction and a Q&A afterwards. So just out of the blue, he had this amazing experience with cinema. And State and Maine isn't necessarily one that I would have chosen as like, this is going to be you know, great <laughs> for everyone. But to have that ability to put that on screen so that someone can come and have that experience. Our mission is to cover the history of cinema, which is only 125 years now. And there are all these countries around the world that produce films. So it's a very broad canvas. And we do have to make financial decisions. So about half of the films that we show come from our own collection to make sure that uh, we don't spend too much money. Uh, the, the Dryden Theater doesn't make money, but as long as we lose the right amount, <laughs> then, then we'll be okay. We're, we're, we're watching the budget lines. But it's we generally program in series. So we try to provide extra contextuality for some of these films, giving you an opportunity to look them at, look at them in a way you may not have seen them before. So whether it's historical, like we're doing with the Sidney Poitier series, or it's thematic with the, the 70 years of CinemaScope. You know, putting these together, it's much like putting two photographs on the wall in our other exhibition space. By having them next to each other, mm -hmm. you're making connections that you wouldn't necessarily just looking at them individually. Which is something you can do as a nonprofit theater because you're not worried about how many screens you can have Ant-Man and the Wasp right. and Quantum Mania, et cetera. But I do wonder about, you know, if I can step away just from the film preservation and think of your role as a curator at what is essentially an independent theater. Mm -hmm. I wonder if the role of independent theaters is going to change as we are clearly seeing the multiplexes starting to, if not fall apart, at least start to shutter a little bit. We're seeing a lot of the big chains starting to pull back on the number of screens, shutting down theaters. I'm wondering if the multiplex era is maybe coming to an end, or at least it's in its transition, is that going to change the role of a theater like yours? I would say not immediately. Uh, I think the uh, multiplexes are going through a different shift. Mm. Um, there are a lot more streamers that are sometimes offering uh, theatrical screenings of some of their stuff. Actually, during the pandemic, it was really great to see some of the smaller distributors that I normally work with have films at our local uh, multiplex. Um, but it, it, of course, is much more truncated in terms of the window that they have, not only in terms of getting the money in, because they're going to see that that new Marvel movie within the first two weeks. So you have to have it, and you have to have it as many screens as possible because they're making their money off the popcorn and candy, mm. not so much the tickets that you're, you're, you're actually buying. Um, but the, the shift, I think, is going to be towards that smaller film. Uh, by providing access to things that people wouldn't normally have access to um, or, you know, to things that the people want to see on the big screen. Um, but it's that, I think that middle ground that, that everyone complains about is, is not being put into the theaters. That's still going to streaming now because that's where the budgets are for that. 
No, it does seem like the the bigs are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. <laughs> and the smalls are remarkably kind of seem to be where the money really is. You look at the, especially those kind of small budget horror films go out and for $15,000, Skinamarink has made a couple of million. Well, if I could make a couple of million dollars off a $15,000 investment, I'd be pretty happy. But it does seem like those middle, and I'm also wondering about those older films. Like, do you find your audience is being drawn in to the older films? They want to come see Casablanca. They want to come see Sidney Poitier. Are they really craving seeing, I guess I'll call it classic cinema? Yes. Yeah. Um, actually, we're doing really well this year. We're doing multiples of where we were at last year. So cinema is coming back. But we are primarily looking at films from the middle part of the century or earlier. I'm trying to include newer films like Rochester premieres, uh, smaller films from other countries to bring in. And uh, there are themes like um, we have one running in March with Google Mbatha Ra, who's a British actress, but she's worked with women directors of color several times. So, mm-hmm. you know, bringing in Beyond the Lights or uh, some of her other films that uh, f- sort of meet that and, and talk about that in, in context with that. But the, the audience for uh, classic cinema is, is sort of what we're hitting. It's, you know, people that have their kids grown up and moved out of the house and they've got a little extra time and a little extra money because they're not paying for them anymore. <laughs> so there, there is sort of that uh, playing to the audience that we do, but then it's taking that and exposing them to something through that that they wouldn't necessarily have seen otherwise. No, and I love the way you, you all you know, kind of recontextualize, as you say, these films and get people to think about them in different ways. Any exciting things coming up for uh, folks who may be in the central New York area or interested in taking a trip to Rochester to see the amazing exhibitions as well as the amazing Dryden Theater? Um, are there things coming up that you're excited about? Oh, well, a couple of them I've already mentioned. Uh, 70 Years of Cinemascope is uh, it's the f- uh, 53 was when Cinemascope came out, and Rochester-based Bausch & Lomb was instrumental in not only manufacturing the lenses, but also taking the technology a little bit further. So we are celebrating 70 years of that with uh, 35-millimeter scope prints that are in our collection. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, we're doing a year-long series, about two films per month of his, uh, generally in chronological order. We'll probably move towards the Academy Award winner at the end of the series. Um, but uh, the Google Mbatha Raw series uh, coming up this week, if, if we drop in the middle of March, is a couple of Rochester premieres. One is the new Hirokazu Koreeda film, uh, Broker, which we, we fought really hard to get. Uh, so uh, we did a, a Koreeda series last year, so I'm very excited about that one. And another one called Last Film Show from India, which it was India's um, entry into the international feature film uh, race for the Academy Awards, as opposed to RRR, which made millions, millions more. But this is a wonderful film about uh, a young boy in Gujarat who is uh, discovering cinema, and it's about the physicality of film hmm. uh, in 2010 uh, during the, the the digital changeover. So it's this about the elegy of the film as a format and his love of light and the way that it affects his life. Some wonderful opportunities. Now, here at uh, Pop Life, we always have a wonderful opportunity. Marvel has its post-credit scene, <laughs> but we have our own post-credit scene, Jared, as you well know. It's a game we call the Fast Five. So, Jared, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> 
the first answer is always the right one. Oh, I didn't realize that. So yeah. now we've got a, a technique. So I'm going to ask you five questions with either or answers, of course, all related to the history of film, beginning with question number one for you, Jared. As we discussed, there are thousands and thousands of lost films, many of which have famous connections. If you could discover a print of one lost film maybe hiding somewhere in the Eastman House's massive collection, would you choose 1926's The Road to Glory, Howard Hawks's directorial debut, or the infamous Todd Browning's 1927 London After Midnight? London After Midnight. I think this time the second choice was right. I'm with you. That is the right. First, first instinct is what I meant. Sorry. Uh, first, yeah, first, first instinct. instinct. <laughs> Question number two for you, Jared. The Dryden Theater, of course, has screened numerous musicals over the years. If you had to live your life, the rest of your life in a musical, would you choose MGM's 1954 classic Brigadoon, starring Gene Kelly and Van Johnson, or 1978's high school musical Grease, starring Olivia Newton-John and John Travolta? You didn't even have to say the second option. It's, it's Brigadoon, definitely. That was an early formative one for me. Uh, Gene Kelly and the athleticism of his dance, that was, that's why I took tap lessons, Kendall. I, later we will have a tap demonstration <laughs> here right on uh, Pop Live. Question number three for you. Jared, if you could sit down for a cup of coffee with one iconic film director, would you choose, and clearly we were preparing for this interview, Akira Kurosawa, director of Japanese classics like Seven Samurai and Rashomon, or John Ford, the filmmaker behind American classics like The Grapes of Wrath and The Quiet Man? Well, other than the fact that uh, one speaks American, or English, one speaks <laughs> Japanese, uh, assuming that that was uh, not an issue, I would go with Kurosawa. Yeah. We, we, we can provide a translator. We can definitely take <laughs> care of that for the end, for the afterlife. Question number four, when Hollywood comes to you, Jared Case, to make a biopic of your life, will it be called Eastman of Eden or Nitrate of the Living Dead? Ooh, uh, Nitrate of the Living Dead. I think yeah. that's perfect. Yeah, no, yeah, we're bringing them back from the dead. They, they, they weren't able to be seen before, so it's I, Nitrate of the Living I Dead. I think we have a Netflix series <laughs> in the work. Finally, question number five on a more serious note. As you mentioned, the Dryden Theater has been hosting a wonderful retrospective of the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, who was a native of Rochester, New York. Which of Hoffman's many amazing performances would you pick as his best? Would you pick his Oscar-winning portrayal of Truman Capote in 2005's Capote, or his turn as a cult leader in Paul Thomas Anderson's 2012 The Master. Uh, it's PTA. you got to go with the PTA film every time. They, they work together five times, and we're showing all five of those films, so I, I would say The Master. Absolutely, The Master. And you have been a master of film and a master of exhibition, and we greatly appreciate it. So as always, Jared, we'd like to close our episodes by asking, what, other than amazing films, is in your pop life? What are you watching, binging, reading? What are you loving? Uh, well, a lot of people listen to music. I listen to podcasts. Uh, so uh, Pop Life, of course, at the top of the list. Uh, but usually they have to do with uh, movies or TV or entertainment. So I'd, I'd uh, call out Film Spotting, which is going on for 18 years now, uh, ever since the beginning of the uh, podcast boom. But also it's Sister, so sister Show, The Next Picture Show, uh, The Projection Booth with Mike White out of Detroit, uh, and a couple of KCRW uh, shows, uh, both The Business and The Treatment with Elvis Mitchell are, are super great. Well, we're glad that Pop Life is in such distinguished company. Uh, Jared Case, thanks so much for joining us. I recommend all of our viewers to get a chance to head to Rochester, New York, and visit the George Eastman Museum and get a chance to catch a screening at the Dryden Theater. As always, thanks for joining us. And remember, whether it's classic, cutting edge, or controversial, if it is part of pop culture, we'll be talking about it here on Pop Life. I will see you all next time.
Thanks for listening to Pop Life, a production of WAER, Syracuse Public Media. You can find archived episodes at WAER.org. And don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen for automatic delivery of new episodes.